Right, I want to welcome everyone. I want to welcome the folks who are with us on our live stream. And we're going to be in Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 through chapter 3, verse 5, wrapping up the first section of Hosea. So um, it, I want to mention in uh, two weeks on February 14th, we're going to have our uh, communion service in here. And for those of you who are on live stream, if, if you uh, would like, we have some communion packs. If you don't have one, if you'll contact the church, we'll make sure that you get one. And, and they'll be here as well, obviously, on, on Sunday morning. And it, everything is individually packaged. So instead of the trays where we pass everything around, it's going to be an individual package. You'll open it. Cracker will be in there. Open that. The juice will be below that. Contessa found that stuff, did a great job on that. So um, we're very grateful. And so we'll be able to uh, do that we'll still kind of figure out exactly how we're gonna uh, get it all distributed on Sunday morning but but I'm really looking forward to that and um, the other thing is out in the foyer there's some little baby bottles that's for the uh, pregnancy center and and that's a fundraiser it's the sanctity of life um, observation this month so as as we come in and do that this is one of the ways that we support sanctity of life is uh, supporting our local pregnancy center abc life choices and so if um, you would like to grab one of those and give you can fill it up with change or checks or dollars they'll take anything and uh, so whatever you want to give that would be great because it's a great ministry that um, we support here in our local community to um, share the gospel with people and to also help uh, women who are um, in pregnancies where they're wondering what are they going to do with that. And it's an opportunity for us to encourage them to choose life. Um, <clears throat> so if, um, if we uh, look into Hosea chapter 2, I want to turn there to verse 14. And, and the first point in there is that God pursues us in verses 14 and 15. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak, speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So in these first couple of verses, we see that God pursues us. He is pursuing us. And, and he has some, uh, some language in there. He says, I'll allure her. I'll bring her. Speak tenderly. Give her. Um, so as, as we come in here into uh, verse 14, we're seeing a drastic shift from the previous part of the chapter. In the previous part of the chapter, it was judgment. This is what God is going to do because my people, they've left me. They have forsaken me for other gods. And now we're followed by a reversal. God is saying, I'm going to allure wayward Israel and bring her to freedom. I'm going to allure her out of her bondage, out of her whoredom, and I'm going to bring her to freeness, um, to, to freedom and forgiveness and a new life. So the wilderness, as he speaks here, I'm going to allure her and bring her into the wilderness. When we talk about the wilderness, it's the wilderness that's like the one that he led Israel through to find freedom from Egypt. If, as a matter of fact, if you're reading through the one-year Bible this morning, you just wrapped up the Passover part and, and you've come in and they are about to be packing it up and heading into the wilderness. They are going on and, and moving out there. And, and this is the imagery that he's using. He's saying, you know what, just as you were in bondage in, in Egypt and you went through the wilderness to find freedom and hope in the promised land, I am going to allure you once again out of your bondage to your 
false gods and I'm going to bring you into freedom through, as you come through this wilderness. So this is something to take note of as we see the grace and the mercy of God towards those who have turned away from him. They didn't love God, but God reached out to them instead. In 1 John 4, 9, John puts it this way. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So as we come in, John, he just said, look, we we weren't chasing after God. God was chasing after us. God came to redeem us. God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. And he says, this is is how you see love. The song that we sang, you know, I'll build my house upon um, on the love of God is, is coming in and, and saying this, that, that we are seeing it in the love of God that he has come to redeem us from our brokenness. So as he comes in, he says, I will, he says, there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. This valley of Accor, it means trouble. That's what this word means, trouble. It's the valley of trouble. And instead of being a valley of trouble, it's going to be a valley of hope. He's saying, I'm going to change what's going on here in your lives on this journey. And the place is, is um, we, if you want to go back as you come through and you read in the book of Exodus, um, you're going to see that they're going to wander through the wilderness for 40 years. At the end of 40 years, they're going to cross the Jordan River and they're going to go and they're going to overwhelm Jericho. The walls are going to fall down. God's going to make the walls fall down when they shout on the seventh day. And they will take Jericho. After that, they're going to send some spies to Ai and say, you know, how many men do we need to take this? And say, oh, about 3,000, I think is what the number is. And they go on and they go in and they're utterly destroyed. They are chased out and they're run down and they come back with their tails between their legs. And they're going, what's going on here? And God said, there's sin. There's sin in the camp. That's what the problem is. The problem is, is that you have false gods among you. And, and so they come out, and it's the story of Achan. And Achan had, stole, had uh, held back some of the plunder that he was supposed to dedicate to God. And, and so it says this became a place of trouble for them. And God says that um, I am going to change this into a place of hope. It's going to be a door of hope. It is the place that they went through to find the promised land. So this is something that, that we need to take note of as we see the grace and mercy of God towards those who have, have turned away from him. And, and as we come in and look at this, there's going to be a people as we come in here from this group of Israelites who are going to be beaten by the Assyrians in in this battle in the fall of Samaria, what's going to happen is he said, there's going to be a remnant that will return one day. These people aren't going to, I mean, it's, it's not over. I mean, it's over, but it's not over. I don't know how to put that, but, but what he's saying is, is as we come back and we come into the day of Jesus, we know that there's a group of people and they're called the Samaritans. The Samaritans are the remnants of these people. They had gone and, and they had intermingled with other people. So they had, they had married into other religious groups, other races of people and so forth. And you have this group of people called the Samaritans. They looked like the Jews, but they, they just were different. They had a different customs and, and so forth. And the grace of God is evident here in his promising he would not let the sin of this generation go on forever. 
So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to let these people forever be away from me, to let every generation hereafter suffer for your sin, to suffer for that. Um, in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, this is where Moses is asked to see the glory of God, and so he hides him in the rock, and he walks by, and he sees the glory, of the backside of God, um, the glory of God. So it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who, all, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And we look at that and think, that's, that's really harsh. What he's saying is, he's talking about generational sin. And what he's saying is, is that the sins of the fathers are repeated by the sons and even the grandsons. That, that sin passes from generation to generation, and, and we can all probably look in our lives and see that, that, that there's a thing called generational sin that, that is carried out from generation to generation. And here's what God says about it. He says that this is not going to have the last word. Generational sin will not have the last word. We are not destined to live out the sins of our fathers. Our children are not destined to live out ours. It's the grace and the mercy of God. And and what he did say, though, he said that the righteousness will go for a thousand. will go for a thousand generations. What he's saying is, is our righteousness, that will impact countless people. It will go a countless distance. It will say that when we come to Christ and, and we find a new fork in the tree, and he starts a new fork in the tree, he's saying, I'm starting something new here. And I'm changing what's going on. And I'm changing what's in the past. And he's saying this to these people. He's saying, you know what? You may be a bunch of idolaters, but that's not going to have the final say. I will have the final say. My grace and my mercy will rule. The valley of trouble will become the valley of hope. What is a problem for you, what has become your pitfall, what has separated you from me, what has broken our relationship and destroyed it, I will change into a door of hope. I will take your brokenness and offer you life. God says that he's going to put an end, put it to an end, but he's also telling us that our righteousness will have an enduring legacy. Your righteousness will have an enduring legacy. Your sin will have a finite one. And he moves on, and, and, and so when we, when we look at this, God is saying, I am going to have a generation that comes after you that will follow me. He's going to pursue us and come after us. So that's the first thing in these first two verses. The second thing he says is, is that God brings us from life to death. So he pursues us and he brings us from life to death. In Hosea chapter 2, 16, he says, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you 
to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So he's going on, he's saying in that day, in this time, when this comes to be, that he's going to remove any thought or desire to honor Baal. He said, I'm going to pull that from you. No longer will you call me my Baal. You'll call me my husband, that we will look to him in a totally different way. Baal, it just simply means my Lord. It means my Lord. And he says, no longer will you call me this. You're not even going to use the word anymore. It's going to be abolished. This will not even be in your language. Even though at one time it may have been appropriate for you to speak to me as my Lord, it's not going to be this time. From now on, it will change. And it's not even going to be allowed because of the false God that the word had come to represent. Baal had come to represent something totally different to them than God as their Lord. So he says, it won't even be on your lips. It will not even come off. And you won't even mention the name of him again. And and to say that, that's a huge thing. In a Semitic culture, to say that I will wipe your name out is huge. I mean, for us, we think, well, you 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 can try to cancel me, but that can't really happen, right? I mean, because people still know and there's still history, right? In this culture, they said, you know what? If you no longer speak a person's name, it's like they never were. And so this is what he's saying. He's going to say, it's going to be like Baal never was in your past. That that this is going to be totally different. You will be faithful to me in every aspect of your life. And this is going to be a future promise to a people who were far from God. And, And it's something that we understand as followers of Jesus as we come into us that he has brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life, that he pursues us and he brings us from being dead to the things of God to making us alive to the things of God. In Colossians 2, 13 and 14, it, the scriptures put it this way. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So here's what he said. He said that he has taken us from our deadness to make us alive. He's made us alive together in Christ and forgiven our sins and canceled the debt that we have, the record of our debt that stood against us with the legal demands, which the legal demands would demand justice and punishment. But instead he's saying, I'm extending grace and mercy. Or another way of putting it is, our sin debt has been paid and we look forward to a kingdom where there is no sin. We'll be in a right relationship with God. We'll be in a right relationships with, with others. There, there won't be any fractured relationships. We won't have strife amongst ourselves. Instead, that he's saying that this, there will come a day, there will come a time as we look to, to the consummation of the kingdom of God. And he's saying at that time that, that we will be restored to where God created us to be in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and, and steadfast love. So he goes on, he says that um, he says there's going to be righteousness and justice. He says, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice. And, and so as we come in there, that's the holiness of God. And that is 
the expression of that to others. And he says, um, in steadfast love, he says, steadfast love, if you remember when we looked at the book of Ruth, steadfast love is what Ruth extended to Naomi. Ruth went beyond what was required or expected of her, and she gave everything of herself. She put her her well-being and everything else behind her and put the well-being of Naomi ahead of her own. She cared for her mother-in-law. You see, it's a love that goes beyond expectations. And, and mercy says, and he comes in, and the, and the he says, I'll do this in righteousness and justice, steadfast love, and in mercy. Mercy is the tender side of commitment. It's the tender side of this hesed love, of this commit, of this um, steadfast love. And, and the root for this word can be used for the womb, so it's coming in and it's talking about a place of nurture, of mercy, of, of where something is cared for and protected and given life and, and a place to grow. So it's faithfulness to the covenant. It's faithfulness to the covenant. He says, I'm going to do this in faithfulness to the covenant. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So to know Jesus and to follow him is to be made fully alive. He's saying, I will make you fully alive. I will bring you to this point in our relationship with one another. So God pursues us. He says, I will allure you. I'll draw you to me. I will make you whole. I will turn your trouble into hope. I will answer you as in the days of your youth, as in when we were close to one another. I will bring you from death to life. I will change the circumstances of your life. And then the next thing in verses 21 to 23 is that God redeems and restores us. So he pursues us, brings us from death to life, then he redeems and restores us. In Hosea 2.21, he says, And in that day, in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land. See the progression of it? He's going from the heavens to the earth, to the things growing of the earth, crying out to God and he's saying, I'm hearing it all the way down from the bottom to the top. I'm coming in. And he says, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. You see, the ultimate end of salvation is to redeem all of creation. It's not just to redeem sinful man. It's to redeem the earth that groans, waiting, to be restored to what God made it to be, to where it was prior to the fall of man in the garden. The immediate purpose of, of this is to redeem us. It's to redeem us from the bondage to sin and to restore our relationship to God. And, and it, this brings glory to God as, as this takes place. In Romans 8, 18 through 24, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes 
for what he sees. Paul says that, look, there's a time. There's a time coming. And, and we are longing for this time when everything is brought back to where God created it to be. And that's the ultimate end of all of it. As Hosea speaks here, and he speaks of, of calling wayward Israel back, he's also speaking of calling all of, all of humanity back in, in Christ, that we are going to come. And, and it begins at this moment for us today. It begins the moment we begin our journey with Jesus and it will be complete when he returns to restore all things in the new heaven and the new earth. That's what we're looking forward to. That's, that's the hope that we have in Christ. But we also have a taste of it now. It's not just something just for the future. He also says, you know what? Now I've moved you from death to life. I've given you the ability to experience me, to know me, to walk with me. We're no longer slaves to sin. He says, we're no longer stuck in the rut that we were in. Instead, he has put us in a new place. He has put a new song in our heart. He's given us a new life. He's given us a new understanding. He's given us a new relationship with him. We're no longer slaves to sin, but instead we've been set free to live the life that God created us to enjoy. In Romans 6, and 23, it says, But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you got, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So look, th this is a huge change for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We all know Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But listen to what verse 22 says. Verse 20 says, 22 says that we've been set free from sin and we've become slaves to God. We have been moved from death to life. And the fruit that we get now, what we get for our works, leads to our sanctification. Sanctification means completion, being, made, being moved to the place where God created us to be, where he redeemed us to be, to that point. And, and it gives us eternal life. So as we come in and we look at this, we understand that God is pursuing us. God makes brings us from death to life. God redeems us and restores us. He doesn't just say, you know what, okay, I'll forgive you, but, but you got to pay for it. He says, no, I'm going to give you a fresh start, a new beginning, a new place to go. I'm going to set it up so that you no longer have to live in the sin of the past. Instead, you can start a, something new, something fresh in your life, something that will go to a thousand generations, something that will make an incredible difference. And then he goes on in chapter 3 and he shows us the picture. So this is the part of Hosea that we're so familiar with as we come in in chapter 1 then we come back to chapter 3 and we see it in, and we see the judgment and we see the redemption happening in this middle part here. And, and then here we see the ultimate in the picture of the grace and the mercy and the purposes of God in chapter 3 verses 1 through 5 we see that the grace of God it's a beyond imagination it is absolutely beyond imagination it says in Hosea 3 1 and the Lord said to me so God speaking to Hosea says go again love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress even as the Lord loves the children of Israel though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins now, just stop. Cakes of raisins, all right? We're not talking rice cakes here. I mean, that's just kind of weird. It sounds weird to us. That's what they used in their worship of Baal. In, the, in their fertility, fertility cult, they had raisin cakes. That, that had something to do with it. As a matter of fact, Gomer's, name, Gomer's father was named Diblaim, which meant raisin cake. So raisin cake, go figure. You learn neat stuff in church all the time, right? So you remember that, but raisin cake. So he's saying no longer 
He's saying saying that um, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. In other words, it says these people love worshiping other gods. They don't love me. They, they, they are whoring after other gods. So he says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without effort or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. You see, God told Hosea to go and buy back the wife who had spurned his love. He says, now, I'm going to make the picture graphically known to everybody in your community. So everybody in here, they're going to know this is Hosea, the prophet. Yeah, right. He couldn't even keep his own house in order. Look at his wife. Look at who she is. Look at what she did. And now here she is. It got so bad after she left him. And we don't really even know if not my people's his people. It got so bad. It got so bad that she had to turn to prostitution. And look at what's happened in his house. Look at what happened to the prophet. And God said, Hosea, go again. Go again, go again, Hosea, and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and eat cakes of raisins. And so Hosea goes to buy back this wife who had spurned his love and humiliated him. He says he, he buys her back for about a bushel and a half of wheat or barley, whatever it was there, some grain, and 15 shekels of silver. The price of a slave was 30 shekels of silver. She was half price and a little bit of grain. Go and buy her back. And God says, this is a picture. This is a picture of what I'm going to do for faithless Israel. This is a picture of what it looks like in, in my house. This is what it looks like for the people that I redeemed and restored. This is what it looks like for the people that I brought out of slavery, out of Egypt. This is what it looks like in the lives of the people whom I have given everything that they could ever imagine or need. And now in all of their prosperity, they think that they're great and grand and dandy and everything's fine. But on the inside, they're rotten. They're rotten. They're chasing after all kinds of stuff. And it's no longer. And and so Hosea goes and he redeems her. And he brings her home. And when he redeems her and brings her home, it's important what he says. What he says is, he says, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. Saying, you're going to come into my house and you're going to stay in my house for a long time. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. 
He's saying, you know what? You're coming home. You're going you're to stay at home. You're not sleeping around, and you're not sleeping with me either. Plain and simple. For the children of Israel, he goes on, he says, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days. This is, what ha- this is what's going to happen to the people of Israel. They're going to live many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or pillar. The pillar was where they would go to sacrifice for Baal. Without ephod or household gods. In other words, we're going to make a clean break from the past. The past is done. It's finished. It's over. No more. I'm done. I bought you back. I've redeemed you. I'm going to restore you. And in this process, we're removing all of that stuff. The name of Baal won't even be on your lips anymore. That's what he's saying. That that name won't even be spoken in the land. He says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. You see, it's a picture of Israel without any political leaders or any religious objects. It says, then they would return to God. You see, if we come back to all of it and we look at the picture and we see this and we see what's happened here, we understand what's going on because we look at the things of this world and, and, and we see everything in here and we have things that God has given us for good and all of a sudden we flip them into something that's turned to evil. We turn these things that God gives us for good into something totally different. It's very easy. We can look at all of the things that, that you know, you look at stuff and it's just, it's, it's morally neutral. It's like this thing, you know, I could, turn the, I could turn that thing off right there if I wanted to right now. Why would I do that? It'd make, it'd make no sense. You know, that'd be dumb. But, but I could do that. Um, it's like my phone. I can take my phone and I can do good things with it or I can do bad things with it. I can do good or I can do evil. I can check up on someone and see how they're doing, or I could say something ugly. I could answer a phone call, or I could do something else. I mean, it's just there. It's, it's, it's totally neutral. It's, it's like the, the electronics here that we have, you know. It's, it's, they can be really good, or they can be demon-possessed like they are right now. You know, the camera can work, or the camera might not work. And all you need is one update. And one update messes everything else up. And you spend days trying to figure out what went wrong. And you know what? That's what our lives are like. We can either take everything that's around us. It's basically our choice. Will I use it for the glory of God? Or will I turn it into my own God? Will I flip the script and do what God has told me not to do? And this is what we see here. And this is the grace and the mercy of God. Because the grace of God is beyond imagination. Because God pursues us. God brings us from death to life. He redeems us. He restores us. And He does it through this process. And He shows the greatness of who He is. The grace and the mercy that He has. And as we began, we came in Romans 5.8. And we started and we said... Everything really is summed up in this one sentence in the Bible. God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, that's the picture of Hosea. That's the picture of what God tells Hosea to do. He says, you know what? Go love her 
in the middle of her sin and shame. Knowing everything about it, I'm asking you to go. And, and when we come in and we come to the bottom of all of it and we see it and, and we look at it and, and we see the, the, the <clears throat> expectations of God, we see the grace of God, the mercy of God, and we see ourselves. We have to look and, and look deep. And, and the bottom of the line is, is that we're Gomer. We're Gomer. That's who we are. We're Gomer. And, God, and Jesus came to buy us off the auction block. He came and bought us off the auction block in our shame. Standing pitiful, naked, up on the block, saying, who will give me 30 shekels? And ain't nobody buying. Nobody's even buying. Hosea comes up there. He says, I'll buy her back. I got 15 shekels and a barley and a, half, and a bushel and a half of grain. That ought to get it. Because we have hoard after the gods of this world and we've ended up used up. You know, that's where sin takes us. When we chase after the stuff of this world and, and it consumes us and eats us up, that's where it takes us. It takes us to this point of being used up, empty and nothing left. But God, but God sees great value. He sees great value, and he came and paid the price for redemption, and he brings us into a perfect relationship with him. That's, that's the extravagant love of God. That is who he is, and that is what he offers to us, and that is what he's crying out to us today. And, and it may be that, that as you come in here today, you know, you're looking at it and saying, you know what? I have wandered down a path, and... Um, I even feel the same shame that you're talking about in there. But, I mean, is that really true? Is it really true? I mean, can God really restore me? Can God really forgive me? Yeah, he can. That's the story. That's, that's why we have this little book in the Bible called Hosea. God said, I want to do it in a vivid way, in a way that you can understand, in terms that you can understand. And I want you to know that I will be your husband, that I will love you unconditionally. I will be a perfect husband to you. I will be a husband who loves you unconditionally, who loves you sacrificially, as Jesus gave himself up for you. That's what I'll be. And that's what he offers. And so he comes and he offers that to you. And you have that opportunity today to receive that, to receive that love, to experience that love, to experience the grace and the mercy of God, to be brought into his household. Because Jesus paid the price. And he offers us that hope. It comes by turning to him, by entering into covenant with him, saying, I will serve you. And you alone. <laughs> Not going to be any more raisin cakes in my house. I will worship you and you alone. And I will follow you trusting in what you did for me. Trusting that you bought me back. 
through your death, your burial, and your resurrection, and I will follow you, believing and trusting there. That, that's where it begins. So, so today you wonder, you know what? I see the darkness of it all, but show me the light. There's the light. There's the hope. There's the hope. And that's the story. That's, that really is. The story's not about the darkness of it all. The story's not about the judgment of it all. The story is about the greatness and the grace and the mercy and the love of God, of the hope that He offers to us in the future, of the fact that He comes to us with a love that is beyond our imagination. And it reaches out to us to redeem us and to bring us back in because His, his ultimate purpose is, is to restore us and to restore the creation and to restore everything back to where He created it to be before we fractured it in our sin. That's the hope of the gospel. So as you come in today and you look at it, maybe you're saying, you know what, I, I want to enter into that. And maybe as, as those of us who have entered into it, we just need to look at our lives and say, you know what? Am I letting some stuff creep back in? What is it in my household that is usurping the position of God? What is it in my life that I'm allowing to come above God? What is it that I'm allowing to be God? And honestly... What's the price of that? What's it going to do to me? What's it going to do to the people around me I love? Ultimately, what's it going to do to my God? Will it bring him honor or will it bring him shame? Because we have been called out of darkness and into the light. We have, been we have experienced the grace and the mercy of God so that we can participate in his kingdom and experience things beyond imagination. We can be a people that God has placed here in this place, in this area, to change it, to change it. I mean, with something that's real, not, not a program or anything else, but to change it with the very presence of Jesus to where that we would love one another, that we would care for one another, that we would do things to build each other up, that we would look to the future to protect our children, that it would be a place for them to grow and to know that, that they wouldn't go to bed hungry at night or wake up hungry in the morning, that they'd be able to go to places where they were safe and they were cared for and they were nurtured. And that generational sin would be put to an end. And that we would be the people that God called and created us to be. And that we would have that kind of an influence. That's the influence that God has for the church. That's what he has for us. That's the purpose and the mission. So when we come in, we're looking at extravagant love because God has given us extravagant love. He expects us to show it towards him and towards the people around us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning praising you for your <coughs> blessings for your love and kindness. Father, we praise you for the hope that you've given to us in the gospel. And we pray today, Lord, that you would help us to draw near to you, to trust you in all things. Father, that you would be our everything, that we wouldn't seek other things in this world to find fulfillment, but instead we'd find it in you as we experience the things that you've given to us and recognize that you're the giver of all good things. And thank you for them. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as Greg leads us? <clears throat>
there would be a bus stop with one lot at our parking lot. Next Sunday, we plan to have our creepy candy before Christmas. Nothing says it quite like that. So excited about it. Also, our students are going on a Christian Crusader service this week in Grayson, Montana. And so please get your coffee flat, $200, or $300 of gift cards to help us move our creepy spirit Is a little bit of what we have going on right now. 